Part 9 of Paul and Virginia This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Alice Christophe Paul and Virginia by Bernard and Saint Pierre Part 9 From the violent rolling of the ship, what we all dreaded happened at last. The cables which held her bow were torn away. She then swung to a single hawser, and was instantly dashed upon the rocks, at the distance of half a cable's length from the shore. A general cry of horror issued from the spectators. Paul rushed forward to throw himself into the sea, when, seizing him by the arm, My son, I exclaimed, would you perish? Let me go to save her, he cried, or let me die. Seeing that despair had deprived him of reason, Domingo and I, in order to preserve him, fastened a long cord around his waist, and held it fast by the end. Paul then precipitated himself towards the Saint-Geron, now swimming, and now walking upon the rocks. Sometimes he had hopes of reaching the vessel, which the sea, by the reflux of its waves, had left almost dry, so that you could have walked round it on foot. But suddenly the billows, returning with fresh fury, shrouded it beneath mountains of water, which then lifted it upright upon its keel. The breakers at the same moment threw the unfortunate Paul far upon the beach, his legs bathed in blood, his bosom wounded, and himself half dead. The moment he had recovered the use of his senses, he arose, and returned with new ardour towards the vessel, the parts of which now yawned asunder from the violent strokes of the billows. The crew then, despairing of their safety, threw themselves in crowds into the sea, upon yards, planks, hen-coops, tables, and barrels. At this moment we beheld an object which wrung our hearts with grief and pity. A young lady appeared in the stern gallery of the Saint-Jerome, stretching out her arms towards him, who was making so many efforts to join her. It was Virginia. She had discovered her lover by his intrepidity. The sight of this amiable girl, exposed to such horrible danger, filled us with unnatural despair. As for Virginia, with a firm and dignified mien, she waved her hand, as if bidding us an eternal farewell. All the sailors had flung themselves into the sea, except one, who still remained upon the deck, and who was naked and strong as Hercules. This man approached Virginia with respect, and kneeling at her feet, attempted to force her to throw off her clothes. But she repulsed him with modesty, and turned away her head. Then we heard redoubled cries from the spectators, Save her! Save her! Do not leave her! But at that moment a mountain billow of enormous magnitude engulfed itself between the Isle of Amber and the coast, and menaced the shattered vessel towards which it rolled bellowing, with its black sides and foaming head. At this terrible sight the tailor flung himself into the sea, and Virginia, seeing death inevitable, crossed her hands upon her breast, and raising upwards her serene and beauteous eyes, seemed an angel prepared to take her flight to heaven. O oh, day of horror! Alas! Everything was swallowed up by the relentless billows. The surge threw some of the spectators, whom an impulse of humanity had prompted to advance towards Virginia, far upon the beach, and also the sailor who had endeavoured to save her life. This man, who had escaped from almost certain death, 
kneeling on the sand, exclaimed, O my God, thou hast saved my life, but I would have given it willingly for that excellent young lady, who had persevered in not undressing herself as I had done. Domingo and I drew the unfortunate Paul to the ashore. He was senseless, and blood was flowing from his mouth and ears. The governor ordered him to be put into the hands of a surgeon, while we, on our part, wandered along the beach, in hopes that the sea would throw up the corpse of Virginia. But the wind having suddenly changed, as it frequently happens during hurricanes, our search was in vain, and we had the grief of thinking that we should not be able to bestow on this sweet and unfortunate girl the last sad duties. We retired from the spot overwhelmed with dismay, and our minds wholly occupied by one cruel loss, although numbers had perished in the wreck. Some of the spectators seemed tempted, from the fatal destiny of this virtuous girl, to doubt the existence of providence. For there are in life such terrible, such unmerited evils, that even the hope of the wise is sometimes shaken. In the meantime Paul, who began to recover his senses, was taken to a house in the neighbourhood, till he was in a fit state to be removed to his own home. Thither I bent my way with Domingo, to discharge the melancholy duty of preparing Virginia's mother and her friend for the disastrous event which had happened. When we had reached the entrance of the valley of the river of Farm Palms, some negroes informed us that the sea had thrown up many pieces of the wreck in the opposite bay. We descended towards it, and one of the first objects that struck my sight upon the beach was the corpse of Virginia. The body was half covered with sand, and preserved the attitude in which we had seen her perish. Her features were not sensibly changed, her eyes were closed, and her countenance was still serene. But the pale purple hues of death were blended on her cheek with the blush of virgin modesty. One of her hands was placed upon her clothes, and the other, which she held on her heart, was fast closed, and so stiffened, that it was with difficulty that I took from its grasp a small box. How great was my emotion, when I saw that it contained the picture of Paul, which she had promised him never to part with while she lived. As for Domingo, he beat his breast and pierced the air with his shrieks. With heavy hearts we then carried the body of Virginia to a fisherman's hut, and gave it in charge of some poor Malabar women, who carefully washed away the sand. While they were employed in this melancholy office, we ascended the hill with trembling steps to the plantation. We found Madame de la Tour and Margaret at prayer, hourly expecting to have tidings from the ship. As soon as Madame de la Tour saw me coming, she eagerly cried, Where is my daughter, my dear daughter, my child? My silence and my tears apprised her of her misfortune. She was instantly seized with a convulsive stopping of the breath and agonizing pains, and her voice was only heard in sighs and groans. Margaret cried, Where is my son? I do not see my son! And fainted. We ran to her assistance. In a short time she recovered, and being assured that Paul was safe and under the care of the governor, she thought of nothing but of succouring her friend, who recovered from one fainting fit only to fall into another. Madame de la Tour passed the whole night in these cruel sufferings, and I became convinced 
there was no sorrow like that of a mother. When she recovered her senses, she cast a fixed, unconscious look towards heaven. In vain her friend and myself pressed her hands in ours. In vain we called upon her by the most tender names. She appeared wholly insensible to these testimonials of our affection, and no sound issued from her oppressed bosom but deep and hollow moans. During the morning, Paul was carried home in a palanquin. He had now recovered the use of his reason, but was unable to utter a word. His interview with his mother and Madame de la Tour, which I had dreaded, produced a better effect than all my cares. A ray of consolation gleamed on the countenances of the two unfortunate mothers. They pressed close to him, clasped him in their arms, and kissed him. Their tears, which excessive anguish had till now dried up at the source, began to flow. Paul mixed his tears with theirs, and nature having thus found relief, a long stupor succeeded the convulsive pangs they had suffered, and afforded them a lethargic repose, which was in truth like that of death. Monsieur de la Bourdonnais sent to apprise me secretly that the corpse of Virginia had been borne to the town by his order, from whence it was to be transferred to the church of the Shaddock Grove. I immediately went down to Port Louis, where I found a multitude assembled from all parts of the island, in order to be present at the funeral solemnity, as if the isle had lost that which was nearest and dearest to it. The vessels in the harbour had their yards crossed, their flags half-mast, and fired guns at long intervals. A body of grenadiers led the funeral procession, with their muskets reversed, their muffled drums sending forth slow and dismal sounds. Dejection was depicted in the countenance of these warriors, who had so often braved death in battle without changing colour. Eight young ladies of considerable families of the island, dressed in white and bearing palm branches in their hands, carried the corpse of their amiable companion, which was covered with flowers. They were followed by a chorus of children, chanting hymns, and by the governor, his field officers, all the principal inhabitants of the island, and an immense crowd of people. This imposing funeral solemnity had been ordered by the administration of the country, which was desirous of doing honour to the virtues of Virginia. But when the mournful procession arrived at the foot of this mountain, within sight of those cottages of which she had been so long an inmate and an ornament, diffusing happiness all around them, and which her loss had now filled with despair, the funeral pomp was interrupted, the hymns and anthems ceased, and the whole plain resounded with sighs and lamentations. Numbers of young girls ran from the neighbouring plantations to touch the coffin of Virginia with their handkerchiefs, and with chaplets and crowns of flowers, invoking her as a saint. Mothers asked of heaven a child like Virginia, lovers, a heart as faithful, the poor, as tender a friend, and the slaves as kind a mistress. When the procession had reached the place of interment, some negresses of Madagascar and Kafra of Mozambique placed a number of baskets of fruit around the corpse, and hung pieces of stuff upon the adjoining trees, according to the custom of their several countries. Some Indian women from Bengal also, and from the coast of Malabar, brought cages full of small birds, which they set at liberty upon her coffin. 
Thus deeply did the loss of this amiable being affect the natives of different countries, and thus was the ritual of various religions performed over the tomb of unfortunate virtue. It became necessary to place guards round her grave, and to employ gentle force in removing some of the daughters of the neighbouring villagers, who endeavoured to throw themselves into it, saying that they had no longer any consolation to hope for in this world, and that nothing remained for them but to die with their benefactress. On the western side of the church of the Shaddock Grove is a small copse of bamboos, where in returning from mass with her mother and Margaret, Virginia loved to rest herself, seated by the side of him, whom she then called her brother. This was the spot selected for her interment. At his return from the funeral solemnity, Monsieur de la Bourdonnais came up here, followed by part of his numerous retinue. He offered Madame de la Tour and her friend all the assistance it was in his power to bestow. After briefly expressing his indignation at the conduct of her unnatural aunt, he advanced to Paul, and said everything which he thought most likely to soothe and console him. "'Heaven is my witness,' said he, "'that I wish to ensure your happiness and that of your family. "'My dear friend, you must go to France. "'I will obtain a commission for you, "'and during your absence I will take the same care of your mother "'as if she were my own.' "'He then offered him his hand. "'But Paul drew away and turned his head aside,' unable to bear his sight. I remained for some time at the plantation of my unfortunate friends, that I might render to them and Paul those offices of friendship that were in my power, and which might alleviate, though they could not heal, the wounds of calamity. At the end of three weeks Paul was able to walk, but his mind seemed to droop in proportion as his body gathered strength. He was insensible to everything, his look was vacant, and when asked a question he made no reply. Madame de la Tour, who was dying, said to him often, My son, while I look at you I think I see my dear Virginia. At the name of Virginia he shuddered, and hastened away from her, notwithstanding the entreaties of his mother, who begged him to come back to her friend. He used to go alone into the garden and seat himself at the foot of Virginia's cocoa tree, with his eyes fixed upon the fountain. The governor's surgeon, who had shown the most humane attention to Paul and the whole family, told us that in order to cure the deep melancholy which had taken possession of his mind, we must allow him to do whatever he pleased, without contradiction. This, he said, afforded the only chance of overcoming the silence in which he persevered. I resolved to follow this advice. The first use which Paul made of his returning strength was to absent himself from the plantation. Being determined not to lose sight of him, I set out immediately, and desired Domingo to take some provisions and accompany us. The young man's strength and spirit seemed renewed as he descended the mountain. He first took the road to the Shaddock Grove, and when he was near the church, in the alley of bamboos, he walked directly to the spot where he saw some earth fresh turned up. Kneeling down there, and raising his eyes to heaven, he offered up a long prayer. This appeared to me a favourable symptom of the return of his reason, since this mark of confidence in the Supreme Being showed that his mind was beginning to resume its natural functions. Domingo and I, following his example, fell upon our knees, 
and mingled our prayers with his. When he arose, he bent his way, paying little attention to us, towards the northern part of the island. As I knew that he was not only ignorant of the spot where the body of Virginia had been deposited, but even of the fact that it had been recovered from the waves, I asked him why he had offered up his prayer at the foot of those bamboos. He answered, We have been there so often. He continued his course until we reached the borders of the forest when night came on. I set him the example of taking some nourishment, and prevailed on him to do the same, and we slept upon the grass at the foot of a tree. The next day I thought he seemed disposed to retrace his steps, for after having gazed a considerable time from the plain upon the church of the Shaddock Grove, with its long avenues of bamboos, he made a movement as if to return home, but suddenly plunging into the forest, he directed his course towards the north. I guessed what was his design, and I endeavoured but in vain to dissuade him from it. About noon we arrived at the quarter of Golden Dust. He rushed down to the seashore, opposite to the spot where the Saint-Geran had been wrecked. At the sight of the Isle of Amber, and its channel, when smooth as a mirror, he exclaimed, Virginia, oh my dear Virginia, and fell senseless. Domingo and I carried him into the woods, where we had some difficulty in recovering him. As soon as he regained his senses, he wished to return to the seashore, but we conjured him not to renew his own anguish and ours by such cruel remembrances, and he took another direction. During a whole week he sought every spot where he had once wandered with the companion of his childhood. He traced the path by which she had gone to intercede for the slave of the Black River. He gazed again upon the banks of the river of the Three Breasts, where she had rested herself when unable to walk further, and upon that part of the wood where they had lost their way. All the haunts which recalled to his memory the anxieties, the sports, the repasts, the benevolence of her he loved, the river of the sloping mountain, my house, the neighbouring cascade, the popo tree she had planted, the grassy fields in which she loved to run, the openings of the forest where she used to sing, all in succession called forth his tears. And those very echoes which had so often resounded with their mutual shouts of joy now repeated only these accents of despair. Virginia, oh my dear Virginia! During this savage and wandering life, his eyes became sunk and hollow, his skin assumed a yellow tint, and his health rapidly declined. Convinced that our present sufferings are rendered more acute by the bitter recollection of bygone pleasures, and that the passions gather strength in solitude, I resolved to remove my unfortunate friend from those scenes which recalled the remembrance of his loss, and to lead him to a more busy part of the island. With this view, I conducted him to the inhabited part of the elevated quarter of Williams, which he had never visited, and where the busy pursuits of agriculture and commerce ever occasioned much bustle and variety. Numbers of carpenters were employed in hewing down and squaring trees, while others were sawing them into planks. Carriages were continually passing and repassing on the roads. Numerous herds of oxen and troops of horses were feeding on those wide-spread meadows, and the whole country was dotted with the dwellings of man. 
On some spots the elevation of the soil permitted the culture of many of the plants of Europe. The yellow ears of ripe corn waved upon the plains. Strawberry plants grew in the openings of the woods, and the roads were bordered by hedges of rose trees. The freshness of the air, too, giving tension to the nerves, was favourable to the health of Europeans. From those heights, situated near the middle of the island, and surrounded by extensive forests, near the sea, nor Port Louis, nor the church of the Shaddock Grove, nor any other object associated with the remembrance of Virginia could be discerned. Even the mountains, which present various shapes on the side of Port Louis, appear from hence like a long promontory, in a straight and perpendicular line, from which arise lofty pyramids of rock, whose summits are enveloped in the clouds. Conducting Paul to these scenes, I kept him continually in action, walking with him in rain and sunshine, by day and by night. I sometimes wandered with him into the depths of the forests, or led him over untilled grounds, hoping that change of scene and fatigue might divert his mind from its gloomy meditations. But the soul of a lover finds everywhere the traces of the beloved object. Night and day, the calm of solitude and the tumult of crowds are to him the same. Time itself, which casts the shade of oblivion over so many other remembrances, in vain would tear that tender and sacred recollection from the heart. The needle, when touched by the lodestone, however it may have been moved from its position, is no sooner left to repose than it returns to the pole of its attraction. So, when I inquired of Paul, as we wandered amidst the plains of Williams, Where shall we now go? He pointed to the north and said, Yonder are our mountains. Let us return home. I now saw that all the means I took to divert him from his melancholy were fruitless, and that no resource was left but an attempt to combat his passion by the arguments which reason suggested I answered him. Yes, there are the mountains where once dwelt your beloved Virginia, and here is the picture you gave her, and which she held when dying to her heart, that heart which even in its last moments only beat for you. I then presented to Paul the little portrait which he had given to Virginia on the borders of the cocoa fountain. At this sight a gloomy joy overspread his countenance. He eagerly seized the picture with his feeble hands, and held it to his lips. His oppressed bosom seemed ready to burst with emotion, and his eyes were filled with tears, which had no power to flow. My son, said I, listen to one who is your friend, who was the friend of Virginia, and who, in the bloom of your hopes, has often endeavoured to fortify your mind against the unforeseen accidents of life. What do you deplore with so much bitterness? Is it your own misfortunes, or those of Virginia, which affect you so deeply? Your own misfortunes are indeed severe. You have lost the most amiable of girls, who would have grown up to womanhood a pattern to her sex, one who sacrificed her own interest to yours, who preferred you to all that fortune could bestow, and considered you as the only recompense worthy of her virtues. But might not this very object, from whom you expected the purest happiness, have proved to you a source of the most cruel distress? She had returned poor and disinherited. 
all you could henceforth have partaken with her was your labour. Rendered more delicate by her education, and more courageous by her misfortunes, you might have beheld her every day sinking beneath her efforts to share and lighten your fatigues. Had she brought you children, they would only have served to increase her anxieties and your own. From the difficulty of sustaining at once your aged parents and your infant family, very likely you will tell me that the governor would have helped you, but how do you know that in a colony where governors are so frequently changed, you would have had others like Monsieur de la Bourdonnais? That one might not have been sent destitute of good feeling and of morality? That your young wife, in order to procure some miserable pittance, might not have been obliged to seek his favour? Had she been weak, you would have been to be pitied, and if she had remained virtuous, you would have continued poor, forced even to consider yourself fortunate if, on account of the beauty and virtue of your wife, you had not to endure persecution from those who had promised you protection. End of part nine.